Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Samir Singh. Samir is an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at UC Irvine. Samir, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Simon. Excited to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background? What got you started working in machine learning? So, yeah, I've been sort of thinking about AI as a goal for a long time, you know, since teenage years, reading all these science fiction books and wanting to solve AI. Um, And in my naivety, I thought the solution was to build robots initially. And so I did an undergrad in electrical engineering, trying to do hardware sort of things, build manipulators and and, uh, sort of small vehicles and things like that. And then when I started reading research papers, I kind of realized that at least at that time, People were spending their whole PhDs just trying to grasp like a cup of something, right? And <laughs> and that that didn't seem like AI to me. So I quickly sort of shifted more towards the software side of things. And at that time, again, a lot of AI was doing A star search and things like that, which seemed a lot more cooler but didn't seem to quite get at the learning or the intelligence aspect of it. So slowly I made my way and found machine learning and been working in machine learning for a long time now. And within machine learning, I think NLP ended up being this sort of really attractive application for me. It seemed a good mixture of being very, very practical, especially with internet and everybody posting stuff online, but also addressing some of the fundamental things that excited me about AI, being able to communicate, being able to understand humans and things like that. So um, that's kind of how I made my way into doing machine learning. Nice, nice. There are some out there that think that embodied applications like robotics are really the only way we're going to get close to AGI. You know, that may be only the roboticists that think that, though. (laughs) What's your take on that since that's, you know, that was the goal that you started out with? Yeah, I think embodied AI is such a like concrete thing that that I feel like there is something very attractive about that. But you know, everybody is struggling with what is AI, how do we define it, and things like that. I think of learning being a key component, and the learning doesn't have to be grounded necessarily. And and if something is learning from internet and from YouTube videos, audio streams, that might be sufficiently intelligent, right? Like who knows, are kids right now really grounded or are they completely in the internet? And, you know, Uh it's difficult to say even us as humans, how how grounded we are going to be in the future. In the matrix, are we, is anyone grounded? Exactly. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your research focus. Focus. What are some of the the areas that you're spending your time on nowadays? Yeah, so uh, for a long time I was doing NLP, sort of a lot of different tasks in NLP, and this is sort of you know about I guess I want to say eight to ten years ago, where I was so focused on the tasks that I was working on that sort of the deep learning stuff kind of went by me, uh, and I was working on sort of more <laughs> graphical models and log linear kind of stuff. 
And by the time I started doing deep learning things, it was really, really good at everything I was doing, uh, but it wasn't using any of the cool stuff that I was working on. So that made me feel like, okay, why is it doing what it is doing? Whether it is it is actually doing what it is doing? So you could say it was almost by spite that my <laughs> research agenda got started. I did my postdoc at University of Washington with Carlos. And with one of his students at the time, we started looking at, okay, these deep learning models really seem to be quite good, but we have very little idea of what's going on in them. And so maybe let's try to find a way to get to some place that we are actually familiar with, right? So it, this took me back to my sort of linear classification or log linear model days, where I used to spend a lot of time looking at feature weights and trying to figure out, okay, is there a problem here? Can I fix something? Or in my worst days, can I even change some of these weights to try and get it to do something? And I think, but since none of that was possible in deep learning, we sort of started thinking about how we could try to get into the internals of deep learning and at least provide some intuition as to what's going on. And that's sort of where I started working on explainability. And we came up with this Lime algorithm uh, in order to explain black box models. And since then, I think explainability has been really interesting. But initially, we were hoping for explainability to tell us why deep learning models are working. <laughs> but often, they ended up telling us why the deep learning models were not working. Mm. And so my trajectory sort of has become a lot more on looking at um, how why are these explanation methods telling us that they're not working when all of these leaderboards and New York Times articles are telling us that they are working, there seems to be this big mismatch. And so why does this mismatch exist and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. So in the recent couple of years, I've been thinking a lot more about evaluation, about debugging and things of that nature for machine learning. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that the Lime paper, which goes back four or five years. Um, well, first of all, as you noted, we're still struggling with the same problem with you know deep learning Great. generally, but the paper itself uh, and that method itself seems to have had you know pretty strong staying power. Like people are still talking about it. People are still using it. By the time this show comes out, we will have had our recent event model explainability forum where we dig into a lot of the current issues in model explainability. But, you know, when people are evaluating explainability methods, Lime is one that, you know, still comes up. Any kind of thoughts or reflections on that work? Did you expect it to be as important as it has turned out to be when you were working on it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I guess you hope that every paper you're working on, I would hope most people <laughs> think that every paper they're working on is actually going to be world changing and, and, and sort of get people excited. But it usually doesn't happen with Lime, of course, People got excited about it a lot more um, than we anticipated. And there are sort of both goods and the bads of it, right? Like we are close to Lime, so we know what it's doing in a way that we know what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. Uh, and we've been more recently with the collaboration with Hema, who I think you had on your podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, we've also been working on going back and looking at Lime and saying, okay, can it, can it be manipulated if there were like bad agents and stuff? And we show that it's actually not that difficult to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think the just like machine learning is considered to be this thing that will come and solve all your problems lime seems to be well whatever problems machine learning has now lime is going to solve it for you and it's not like that right now yeah. it's one of the explainability techniques it it is a useful tool i believe especially for evaluation but it's not something that has solved the model explainability problem and if anything it initiated a discussion and i'm glad that people are talking about it because it's a really really difficult problem even to define what explainability is much less solve it in a single paper mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that paper set the stage for the paper we'll be spending some time talking about today, and that is Beyond Accuracy, Behavioral Testing of NLP Models with Checklists, which was the ACL 2020 Best Paper winner. Congratulations. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about that paper and how the some of your prior research led you to that problem. Yeah, so I think a lot of my uh, research, especially in collaboration with Marco, has been sort of looking at this this mismatch between what accuracy seems to suggest and what what we know models are actually capable of. Uh, and accuracy is something that's very quantitative. It's on the leaderboard out there. You can say 10% better or worse or whatever it is. But on the other side, what models are good at and what models are bad at is not something that's quantified or formalized or even well-defined as far as the community is concerned, right? Mm -hmm. So what we wanted to do was try to look at this mismatch and say, okay, there should be some way of thinking about this that goes beyond just creating another leaderboard or introducing a different data set. This work started maybe two years ago with this work we did called SEERS, where the idea was very simple. What we're going to do is we're going to think of doing adversarial attacks on models But instead of doing this, adding some noise that people don't understand, we're going to take the original instance and we're just going to paraphrase it, right? So it should be exactly the same sentence in terms of its meaning, but the the actual form might be different. And we had an automated tool for doing this, building upon a lot of other people who've been working on back translation and things like that. And the Um, paraphrasing was what you called the adversarial attack in this case? Yes, because it was a paraphrase that was getting the model to change its prediction. Got it. Right. So what is that thing on the table versus what's that thing on the table? This is like a very simple version of a paraphrase. Uh, Of course, this means the same to us. But at that time, uh, there were models that got like gave a different prediction for these two instances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was one way to start characterizing what the problems were in the models. We continue this work so we can call this sort of robustness to paraphrases, I guess. We had another follow-up work that was looking at consistency. So if you had, is there a bird in the image? Or let's say, how many birds are in this image? The model might say two. And then we say, are there two birds in this image? The model should clearly say yes, but the model did not often. And what that meant was model was not even being consistent with its own sort of what it thinks is going on. And so that also sort of started thinking us about how can we characterize what the pitfalls in these models are. And that all sort of culminates in this work in Checklist, where we kind of create a tool to allow users to think a lot more about testing in a structured way, essentially. Okay. Identifying the the pitfalls or possible failure modes is 
fairly different from identifying the causes of those pitfalls. How well do do we understand for the, the various models that you're looking at, you know, what's actually causing the problems? Uh, very little, I think. So, <laughs> and, and so you would hope that, uh, so just to sort of clarify what checklist does is it creates essentially helps you create a bunch of tests for your model. And when the tests fail, similar to traditional software engineering, sometimes the test fails and you're like, oh, I forgot to use that variable. Instead, I use some other variable. Uh, but sometimes it fails and you're like, oh, wait, the whole my whole piece of code, the way I was structuring it is completely wrong, right? And so even in machine learning, when something fails, either it could be some artifact of the training data or it could be... Uh, it could lead to like a string of five research papers that eventually solve that problem, hopefully, right? Like so. So, for example, fairness is a good example of that, right? If your model is being unfair, there are no easy, I'm going to replace all males with females or something like that and solve the problem. That doesn't do it. But checklist focuses more on at least do you know if this is a problem or not? And can you get an idea of how much this is a problem? Okay. So you describe checklists as analogous to kind of behavioral testing in software engineering. You know, kind of riff on that analogy uh, a little bit. Yeah, so that that's actually where we started. We were like, people have been building all these complex software systems. Machine learning is not the first one to come up and start predicting the sentiment. There are way other more complicated software that do much more complicated things. Uh, how do they approach testing? Right? And this is something that, that all of us know. And we wanted to see how many of those lessons can be taken and applied to machine learning. So the idea was we we create a bunch of different kinds of tests and I can sort of walk you through what they look like. But the easiest one to understand is something we call minimal functionality test, where it basically looks like a unit test in software engineering, right? So I'm not going to think too much about what the everything that the model is supposed to be doing, but I'm going to pick a single phenomena. So say we are trying to do sentiment analysis and we just want a very simple, like, does it understand negation or not, right? If I say this movie is not good, is my sentiment classifier able to do that or not? Right, so that's a very simple unit test. Uh, that by itself, if the model does it or not, can be useful, but we sort of have this whole templating engine that says, I can say something like, this blank is not blank where we fill blanks, the first blank with a bunch of nouns and the second blank with a bunch of uh, positive adjectives and negative adjectives. And then we have an expectation over whether the model will predict positive or negative review for it. And so in this case, we create many test cases, as they would say in software engineering. Mm -hmm. And we test a machine learning model by just running the model output through these things. And what this does is it hasn't told you, like, does this model, if, if you pass all the tests, you don't know whether the model has definitely learned how to do negation or not. But if, if it does fail most of this test, um, it would be a red flag and you would say, okay, the model doesn't even understand such a simple negation. It probably doesn't understand negation. So, so based on this intuition, we created a bunch of different kinds of tests. Yeah, and I can walk you through those if you like. Yeah. Before we do that, though, you gave sentiment analysis as an example 
what is the the scope of checklists? For example, you know, we we spend a lot of time talking about language models nowadays and transformers and things like that. Is it does it address those kinds of tasks as well, or is it limited to classification? You know, what what's, what are the the boundaries of this work? Yeah, so I think we we uh, in, in the paper itself we had a bunch of tasks that go beyond sentiment analysis or just simple classification, I guess. And just to sort of uh, motivate why we picked sentiment analysis, this was also one of the system that uh, one of the tasks that research papers are constantly looking at and trying to do better on. And by some metrics, we are better than humans on sentiment analysis, which may not be a surprise to many people. But also it it was one of those tasks where there were a lot of commercial products. So like Microsoft and Google and Amazon make a ready to buy purchase uh, sentiment analyzer. And what we wanted to do was apply checklists, not just to some research models that we had lying around, which were all transformer-based, like BERT and Roberta, but also apply checklists to these commercial systems to see uh, what they were lacking in um, and sort of be able to compare across research and industrial models. But in the paper, we also did things like question answering, where you're given a question, you have to come up with an answer, given a paragraph. We did uh, paraphrase detection. So there's a Quora question pair data set where you have pairs of questions and you want to detect whether they're paraphrases or not. Uh, We didn't directly do language modeling, but that's something that we've been working on. And it's a little bit trickier to define what even a test is for language models, but I think um, there are ways to use checklists for that as well. Okay, okay. Walk us through the kind of the array of tests. Yeah, so the idea here is that you want to figure out what are the capabilities of the model. So you can, we conceptualize it as a matrix where there are a bunch of rows where the rows are sort of what you want to test about the model, right? So suppose simple negation is something that you might want to test. And the easiest way to test that is to create a bunch of minimum functionality tests like unit tests. Uh, For some other ones, we wanted to test things like robustness to location names, right? So uh, my flight to US was great. I want to see how much, uh, whether the model is robust to changes in the country name, right? If I replace US with a different country, or if it's a city, then replace it with a different city. The sentiment doesn't change, but are the models robust to that or not? That doesn't quite fit into the unit test. So we had a second category of tests, which we call invariance tests, where we are, and this is also something that's similar uh, in software engineering, where we are essentially mutating the input or perturbing the input in ways that we know shouldn't affect the sentiment. In this case, replacing US with China or any other country. And then trying to see how often does that change the actual output of the model. And this was one of the ones which was quite surprising to us because many times when you change the location, the output of the model uh, changes, right? Mm. Which was, yeah, surprising and disappointing. (laughs) Some of the other kind of capabilities you might want to check was you're like, okay, I don't care what the review was. But if I explicitly add a strongly negative statement to it, so if I say uh, blah, 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 review ends, I really hated it at the end, you would hope that the model will not become more positive towards this review, right? Now, this is also not invariance because in in this case, you're changing the input. 
but you're trying to ch test the directionality of the the output. So this is more of a directional test. Mm -hmm. And I we just want to say a test where you've got you, you use a similar kind of you know strong definitive statement. Uh, and you want to see if the model even picks up on that, as a, even if there's other things that are more ambiguous or even positive. Do you have a test kind of along those lines? Not really, because it's always like we wanted to define tests where the where we what we wanted was a failure rate of zero. Right? Mm. We didn't want something where 80 percent would be still or oh, sorry, 20 percent failure would still be OK. Right. So, if, if, so with the strong statements, you can never be sure whether they contradict enough with the review text, right? So in this case, we, we wanted to keep it simple, right? Like we wanted to say at least this thing, the model should be able to get 0% failure on, right? So it shouldn't become more positive is a very simple statement. That's why it was a surprise to us where many times it did like more than a third of the time, it just became more positive when wow. you added phrases like that, right? And and these are some of these words sort of commercial systems as well. Yeah, so th th these kind of um, tests are, in some sense, the way we describe it is like the, I guess, mathematically more of a necessary condition for a model to get uh, deployed. Just because you get 0% failure doesn't mean that the model is safe to deploy just because similar to software testing, right? Just because all your tests pass doesn't mean you don't have any more work to do. You probably either need to write more tests or write more code and iterate. But at least if a test fails, that there is a red flag and you know exactly what's what the model is not able to do. And just by breaking these things down, I think um, that's the main contribution of checklist is making, hopefully making people think a little bit more about these different dimensions of the problem than just the single number. Mm, got it. Is there an analogy to, to code coverage in these types of tests? Oh, that's a <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> there there has been some work that um, tries to do these things where they the analogy to code coverage is to look at the neurons inside the yeah. transformer or whatever, and and try to make sure there are enough inputs in your test case or or whatever adversarial attacks or whatever you're planning to do that go through all the neurons at some point. Uh, we haven't looked <laughs> at, at things like that. <laughs> yeah, we, we are sort of going back to almost like a black box model way of thinking about this, right? You are someone who cares about sentiment analysis or you care about whatever you're trying to use machine learning for. And presumably with that, you have a, a set of capabilities that you expect someone who's claiming it can do uh, sentiment analysis should be able to do, right? So we are sort of, uh, I guess, delegating that to the users rather than yeah, thinking about the internals of the model. Mm -hmm. And so from a, a practical perspective, if I read the paper, download the, the code, are you suggesting that the, you know, this is a, you know, kind of point this at your model and run it and it's a full, it kind of throws the book at your model and tells you where it's weak or do I have to adapt checklists with my particular model in mind and the things that I, you know, maybe the things I'm concerned about or, you know, what, how engaged does a user have to be in taking advantage of this? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. And we've been thinking a lot about this. And I guess the answer is it's somewhere in between, depends specifically on what you're working on. So I guess the easiest one would be if you are creating a sentiment analysis system in your company, then it's trivial. You can just download our code and run it. If you are doing one of the tasks that are not already supported in checklist, then it's pretty easy. And we've tried to, like Marco's written really nice documentation and sort of walk through it. It's pretty easy to get started and start thinking about, okay, what are the capabilities for this specific task? And how do I write it down in a way that uh, we can generate a lot of tests? And checklist is really, really really useful for for use cases like that. I would say we we did some experiment also to sort of make sure that this is the case, and we can talk about that a little later. But what we also want to try to do, and we are sort of getting there slowly, is to make it incredibly easy for people to contribute the tests um, or for us to keep growing the set of tests that are available in Checklist. Um, So if you're doing a task that is either slightly adjacent to what we already have. For example, you're doing paraphrasing, but not question paraphrasing, then you may have additional tests and we make it really easy to um, include it back in checklist. We also want to make it really easy to evaluate any new model that comes out, right? So we want to, for example, if Hugging Face has a new Transformers model, we should we want to make it incredibly easy to also test and generate sort of almost a report card of, okay, on negation, we got this much failure rate. On something else, we got this much, and so on. Got it. Yeah. The task that the user has to do to adapt it to their model, is it writing tests or writing some kind of meta test or test recipe that checklist then uses to generate a bunch of tests? I kind of heard both in your description. Yeah, so it kind of supports both. But I think um, the way we've been approaching this is... For the first part, you just have to think a lot, right? So you have to think about what are the different capabilities and checklist can not quite help you with that. Um, Maybe it helps a little bit by some of the automated exploration tools. But the idea is so we can take any specific, uh, say, fairness or something like that, right? Like, I want my model to be fair. Well, how do we answer something like this? Um, And say I'm doing question answering, right? So, okay, how can I test whether the model is being fair? And let's be more specific. Let's say uh, gender fairness, right? So if I think the model is not fair, one way to test whether it's fair or not is to come up with a really simple context for the question answering system where we can say John is not a doctor, but Mary is. And then ask the question, who is the doctor? This thing is something we can easily write out and we know the answer should be Mary because it's obvious from the sentence. Um, And that's a test, right? Now we can say, well, if the model fails or not, it could be dependent on the word choice of John or Mary. So I might, maybe I want to replace John or Mary with any other names, right? So we, John with any other male name, Mary with any other female name. And checklist has some of these lexicons built in. So you can easily just say, okay, I'm going to create a template that says male first name is not a doctor, but female first name is. Who is the doctor? Female first name, right? Uh, That's one level of templating. Then you can say, well, why should it be just doctor? Maybe there are other professions that I also want to test. Um, So we have a tool that 
just you can hide doctor and it suggests a bunch of professions and you can say, okay, I want to say pick a bunch of these as part of the test. And by doing all of these things, you can essentially create thousands of use cases automatically, even just for the single uh, statement that I talked about, and then just quickly test it, uh, whether the model, your model is actually passing them with a sufficient tolerance or not. Do you envision a way to use checklist or maybe some future version or evolution of, of this work? You not just to give you kind of a a binary pass fail or sufficient or necessary. I forget which of those conditions you mentioned, but um, but rather to to give you insights into your model that you can then take into the training loop, the training process. For example, you mentioned the gender bias example. Is there can it tell you more than you have a problem and maybe how you might go about fixing the problem? Yeah, how you go about fixing a problem is a is a much more difficult difficult step. But I would say yeah. the first <laughs> step of going about fixing a problem is to know all the problems that your model might have, right? So, yeah, I guess the short answer is no. That's not not something we we focus on. In the future, we are thinking of ways to do it. The tricky thing here is, um, I, I think of these tests almost as like you should think of the test set in the in machine learning, right? So test set is supposed to be this hidden test set. Just because you get some error on the test set doesn't mean you just add those instances to your training data, right? If you do that, you've lost the value of the test set, right? So in, the, in similar sense, these tests or what checklist is doing should be treated as something slightly external to the training process because you've come up with the one way of phrasing the negation and you want to just test that as a proxy for other ways of phrasing the negation. And so if you put this test somehow back into the training loop, you've lost that advantage you had. And now you have to come up with either a different formulation of negation or assume that the model has learned negation and uh, both of those might be difficult or wrong things to do. So I think at least for now, we are thinking of checklist a little bit as a, a test set that's a lot more fine-grained. Uh, and and essentially customizable to your specific task. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about the evaluation process for um, you know as you built this out. Yeah. So we built this tool, and you know uh, we sat down on a bunch of tasks, and we did sentiment analysis and QQP and uh, squad, and and these are very different from each other. You know, classification, paraphrasing, and question answering. And we we were feeling pretty confident about how useful checklist was, but you know we are biased because we developed it. <laughs> so we decided to evaluate it. And evaluating a testing pipeline is a little bit tricky, but you know Marco spent a lot of time thinking about what would be the right way to do this. And we essentially converged on two separate evaluations, uh, both of them involve, involving users. So the first one was since we are working with these commercial models already, let's try to go to a commercial team that's actually responsible for one of these products and not only sort of find out what their testing methodology is, but also propose checklists to them and see what they think of it, right? So we had, I think, like a five-hour session with one of the uh, senior developers in that team. And we were like, hey, here's checklist. Here's how it works. Here's how it, you know, give, give them a walkthrough and them say like, go crazy, you know, 
do what you guys do and uh, see if you find this thing useful. And what was surprising was that um, not only did they were they able to quickly confirm some of the bugs that they knew were in the products, which is nice, but they were also able to find a bunch of new problems that they didn't know uh, was already in their model just by the use of checklists, right? And they were like, oh yeah, now I need to get people to fix this stuff because this is a problem, right? And that's exactly the use case we expect checklists to be useful for. Um, and so that was one of the things and we got pretty good feedback and and I think Marco is working with a bunch of people to help integrate uh, checklist into the existing pipelines. Um, the other set of evaluation we did was um, we went to sort of university students and people who have at least taken an NLP course, so they know NLP, but they probably, and they most of them hadn't really worked with the QQP data set, this, this question paraphrasing data set. Uh, so we wanted to test, is checklist useful even if you're not already a domain expert, right? And we explained to them what QQP was, we explained to them uh, what checklist is, and it was a slightly uh, cut down version of checklist because we didn't have five hours to spend with each user. And we said, okay, now can you find bugs in the system? And essentially, you know, we, I can refer to the paper for exact numbers, but people who were using checklist, the full capability of checklist, were able to find many more bugs or many more different problems with the model. But even for each problem, they were able to figure out a lot more test cases. Um, mm. So uh, hundreds or on, on that order instead of writing just a few sentences. So you, you got more confident that those problems were actual problems because they were being tested on so many more instances. And so this both these combination of evaluation made us feel like this could be a pretty useful tool for the community, uh, whether it's someone who's an expert and is trying to deploy machine learning for practical purposes, or it's some research project that that's trying to beat a leaderboard. Mm-hmm. Got it. There are groups that have developed uh, for analogous problems in computer vision, like bias testing toolkits. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, things along the lines of gender shades, like trying to determine whether a given model or service can do what it does, whether it's, you know, predicting gender or predicting age or things like that, independent of the ethnicity of the sample data. What you're doing with checklists, you know, A, strikes me as like a meta level above those kinds of tests. But I'm wondering if you are aware of or can envision something similar applied to computer vision or other domains beyond NLP. Yeah, so that's a good um, that's a good connection, and I would say we are quite inspired by a bunch of those um, papers when we were developing uh, checklist. Uh, specifically in NLP, also there have been a bunch of tools where they're looking at a specific phenomena and trying to look at okay, is sentiment analysis system being fair or not, and and things like that, right? So yeah, uh, checklist is very much inspired and related to all of that that work and in some sense tries to unify this whole thing like you said in a meta way we actually did play around a lot with computer vision and that's not something and i'm an expert in so uh, partly i would say that's on me uh, but i think 
there are definitely cases where you can use checklist style approach to computer vision. Uh, we played around a little bit with visual question answering and we would do things like put up the image and, and things like that um, to try and see if the, the output remains the same, but it's a little bit trickier to do. So yes, I think there are ways to extend checklists to apply it to computer vision and videos and things like that, but it would require a little bit more research than um, than we had time for. Do, do you have a sense for some examples of what minimum functional tests might be in the vision domain? Um, yeah, so the ones that I think of are maybe too simple and, and in some sense um, might be easy to do. So for example, we can imagine creating an image, right? Like taking a something that we know is a dog and placing it in different parts of the image to see if it gets confused, right? That's probably too simple and I'm mm -hmm. sure most classifiers would work, but then I can take dogs and combine them with atypical backgrounds, right? So I can take, of course, a scene from the park and you put a dog in it, it's probably okay. Yeah. But can I take a scene of the sky and put a dog in it? I still want the classifier to predict dog. Right. Can I take um, a slice of pizza and put a dog on it and things like that. And so you can imagine these kind of tests would uh, be easy to create. Um, and maybe there's a computer vision paper that's doing things like that, but would give you an idea of, okay, does the background confuse the classifier or not? Mm -hmm. Right. And I imagine that um, some of these tests might actually be pretty, might show problems in existing computer vision systems. Awesome. Awesome. Any additional thoughts uh, that you would want to share with folks that are kind of interested in what they're hearing and, and, you know, might want to explore more or might want to, you know, build on, on this work, you know, what, what should folks be thinking about, you know, as they're thinking about this problem? Yeah, I would say uh, part of the slightly danger with checklist is a lot of the things we do are in some sense seem very obvious, right? Like, especially once you see the examples, you're like, okay, yeah, clearly we should be testing for these things. And, and that kind of makes it a little bit dangerous because people might easily overlook it. Right. And so, you know, somebody might go into their team and like, Hey, we have a sentiment analysis system. Are we doing testing? And the answer could come back as yes, but testing is not a yes or no question. It's like, are you doing a thorough job of testing it? And so what we're really hoping is checklist would inspire people to do a lot, lot more thorough testing. And in some sense, when they make accuracy judgment for a model, uh, they try to qualify it with some of the sort of things that checklist produces, right? Um, and hopefully they go much beyond checklist and do much more finer grained reporting on what a model does. Um, just like we wouldn't want the performance of a, a human employee to be reduced to a number in some sense, but you know, a performance review involves a lot of different dimensions to it. As these machine learning models are becoming more involved in our pipelines, I think it's, it's useful to think about them as like, what are their capabilities and what are their weaknesses and be able to say something about them rather than just saying, I'm going to use this model because it's the top of the leaderboard and therefore uh, best. You, you mentioned that some of the examples that are covered by these minimum functional tests are, you know, obvious, at least in retrospect, do you, do you think that part of what the paper offers is kind of concrete language to refer to these so that teams can say, 
well, we fail, you know, X, Y, Z test. We fail the negation test. We fail the strong, you know, the strong final statement test. Is the paper even concrete in in defining these, you know, and establishing language there? Do you, do you think that that becomes a, a way that people use this? Uh, that that's a good good point. We didn't think of that use case, but yes, that that could be a contribution. Uh, although I would say that that would be a contribution to maybe people who haven't seen. Uh, sort of more linguisticy aspects of NLP, right? So a lot of our test names uh, are heavily inspired by stuff that has already been studied in linguistics. We are just testing phenomena of language, and we are not the first one to think about what are the different phenomena, right? And so the names we use in checklist are a lot are common knowledge to a lot of uh, NLP researchers. But I can imagine to someone who's been designing, for example, a sentiment classifier. Um, they may not know what the what does semantic role labeling have to do with sentiment, right? right. Whereas we have a bunch of tests that check specifically for semantic uh, role labeling and things like that. Right? Got it. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Samir, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us a little bit about what you're doing. Um, awesome work and congrats once again on the Best Paper Award. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sam. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.